Good morning, friends. Good morning. It's good to see you. It's a nice full house today. Um, my name's Randy. I'm lead pastor here, and it's just my joy to spend Sunday mornings with you and to reflect on who Jesus is together and to give ourselves, try to give ourselves more and more to this person called Jesus of Nazareth, who we believe is the creator of all things, is the redeemer of literally all things, who's worthy of our worship, who's worthy of our devotion, who's worthy of our discipleship. And that means more than Sunday mornings even. So this morning, as Shelley has been saying for a couple of times, we're doing a Q&R. Um, the reason for that is because of what I said two weeks ago wasn't here last week. Shelley did a great job of guiding us through the first part of John 13. We have been in the book of John since mid-July, and it's been a beautiful ride. We've been in the book of, book of John, the Gospel of John. The kids are having fun upstairs. <laughs> Let's just name that. We, uh, this building was built in 1902. So that's a long time ago, 121 years ago. And it wasn't built with the idea of having a bunch of kids upstairs, and it was just built for the sanctuary. So as I told my friend who was in here for the first time on Friday evening, it just gets noisy upstairs. So let's just embrace the noise. That means our kids are having fun, enjoying themselves, and being children in kids' church. Yes. Um, We've been in the book of John since the middle of July, and we got to John 12 two weeks ago. And in John 12, Jesus says, something like this in John 12, 31 and 32. He says, now is the time of judgment for this world. And usually we get the shivers when, God says, when Jesus says something like that. Now is the time for judgment of this world. But I talked to you through what my take on that judgment is, and it's just not my take. It's never my take. I'm consulting with scholars and reading commentaries and all this stuff. And the, the word judgment, in, when Jesus says it, means a couple of things. First thing it means, and this is the biggest thing it means, when Jesus says, now is the time of judgment for this world, we think Jesus means now is the time for me to smite all these sinful human beings, right? Well, actually, scholars like N.T. Wright and many, many others would say, when Jesus says, now is the time of judgment for this, wor- for this world, he means, now is the time for me to set all things to right. See, things like evil and violence in judgment, in prejudice, in racism, and hatred, and ugliness, and bitterness, and division, and strife. And you can name all the things. I could, I could be here till tomorrow naming all the things that hold God's people, human beings, back from, from living in this created design that God created for us to reflect His image and His glory. And when Jesus says something like, now is the time for judgment of this world, he says, now is the time for me to be crucified and to set all things to right. So that's the first thing. Second thing is that I believe, we Christians too often believe that when you say yes to Jesus, you now get this get out of jail free card, you have eternal life, and judgment isn't a thing that we have to deal with or think about. And I think there's this theme through the scriptures. And this is what you, when you want to have, a, have an idea of what do I believe about God? What do I believe about the kingdom of God and the way things work? 
it's best to not take one little verse. It's best to take these themes throughout Scripture. And when I look at the themes throughout Scripture about judgment, I think I see a, a theme that says each and every one of us will pass through the judgment of God. Even if I say yes to Jesus. See, because I think that, G, that, that God wants to burn out and refine us, to the, refine all of the sin, all of the brokenness out of us with the love of God until all that remains in each and every one of us is nothing but divine love. That's what this process of sanctification is. I'm saying these old school words. That's what this process of discipleship is. Is letting ourselves be transformed in this life into the likeness of Christ. But none of us will ever get to that point, right? I don't think anybody's ever lived besides Jesus who'd gotten to the point of, I look like Jesus perfectly. And I think at the end of our lives, all of us will pass through what, what the Old Testament called the refiner's fire. To burn away all of that which is not love inside of us. So that we stand before Christ in pure love. So judgment is both beautiful in that God is setting all things to right. And also kind of scary in that I believe each and every one of us will pass through that refiner's fire of God that is the love of Jesus. That is pure love. And that's why I want to be transformed into the likeness of Christ more and more so that it's as little as painful as possible. So that's the, the judgment part. And then Jesus said this. He said, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And I, Shelley, was kind in just saying, hey, we're going to talk about the things that Randy's talked about recently. What she meant was is that I said I believe Jesus when he said that. That when I'm lifted up from the earth, he's talking about his crucifixion, John tells us. When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And when Jesus says all people, I believe him. I went on to say two weeks ago that there's many verses in the New Testament, over two dozen, that speak to all things being reconciled to God in Christ Jesus. I'll have, I've got a few, a, a number of them ready on PowerPoint if anyone has questions, but just an example is this Colossians 1. When you read Colossians 1, this is one of these verses that convinces me that the Bible is inspired. Because no human being could come up with something. Thank you, Conrad. No human being could come up with this concept of Jesus that is this rich and complex as Paul did in Colossians 1, starting in about verse 15. But in Colossians 1, 19, he says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness, all God's fullness, dwell in Jesus, and through Jesus to reconcile to God's self all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by, peace, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And here's my deal is I've believed this for a while. But most pastors don't tell, all, tell their congregations all the things that they believe. Because they know that they could get in trouble if they do, to be honest with you. And I mean it. Like, I know dozens of pastors, and I love many, many pastors, and have close pastoral friends. And I don't know any pastor who is able to tell their church all the things that they really think or believe because they might be without a job if they do. 
Here's the last thing that I haven't told you that I believe. I believe that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was so consequential that every single human being who has ever lived will have life eternal at the end. And the reason that I think that is because of the scriptures. Because I believe when Paul says that God was pleased to have all God's fullness dwell in Jesus so that through Jesus he could reconcile all things to God's self. These verses, there's tons of these verses in the New Testament speaking to God reconciling, redeeming all things. And I just want to ask, why don't we believe them? And what I said two weeks ago is, is, is I think is absolutely true. There are verses in the New Testament, in the Bible, but in the New Testament in particular, that speak to, it seems like not all people will be reconciled. Not all people will be with God in the end. You can go through Matthew 25. You can go through many. I'm going to separate the sheep and the goats, and the sheep will come to eternal life, and the, the goats will go to condemnation. Like, there, there are those verses. You can believe that some people will, will, will spend eternity in hell, and that's biblical. That actually is biblical. There are verses in the Bible that, that speak to not all people being redeemed or, or reconciled to God in the end. You can believe that that's biblical. What's also biblical is believing that all people and all things will be renewed and redeemed to, and reconciled to God in the end. That is biblical. And I don't think there's any arguing either one of those, those points. You can ask your questions. Do the... Conrad put the the numbers up, the cool ocean two, two, three, three, three thing. There we go. If what I'm saying is like, ah, go ahead, two, two, three, 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 you put that in the, where you're writing to, and then begin your text with cool ocean three, two, two, space, then ask your question. But what I want to cultivate is a space within this church where you can, some of us can believe that you have to believe in Jesus when, before you die in order to get to heaven. And if you don't, you're going to hell. You can believe that, and that's biblical. And I want to cultivate a space where we can reckon, re recognize that you can also believe that when, God, when, when the scriptures say that Jesus came to reconcile all things to God in Christ Jesus, that you can believe that, and that's biblical. And we can be in the same church. And we can disagree with one another. And we can learn from one another. And we don't have to... Run for the hills if we, if we go to a church where maybe the pastor doesn't believe something. See, we have elders who, we're all different, and we believe different things. And we, we, we see, the reason that I'm able to actually say this is because we have elders that I went to and said, I want to say this, this is what I believe. And they said, yeah, please do that. That's good, great. And we, we believe similarly, but not altogether exactly the same, right? Or not all of us are ready to say, yes, I'm with you, Randy, 100%. We're all in process. See, because here's the deal, friends. We're all human beings. We're all in this journey towards Jesus, which it means that we're all in this journey towards truth. Because we're going to find in a couple of weeks, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I believe him when he says that, that Jesus is the truth. If you want to know what tr what's true, look to Jesus. I drive philosophers crazy when I say that because they think truth is this concrete thing. And I want to say, yes, it is. It's a person named Jesus.
And we're all on this journey towards Jesus together. So that's the beauty of mornings like this, is that we get to talk together. So last week, or two weeks ago after I gave that sermon, and I talked about this big, crazy Greek word, apokatastasis, and similar to Kumpo, it took me a year and a half to get the pronunciation. <laughs> I think it'll take about that long. We have, uh, within our church, we have the privilege of having um, a person who is a biblical scholar and a church historian. He's a professor at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, in Manhattan, and he, he does this via Zoom now because COVID happened. We get the blessing of having Zach Domach in. So Zach, I've, Zach after I preached the sermon two weeks ago, he was kind of going a little bonkers. He was really excited about this Greek word that I said and what we're talking about and everything. So I thought, let's have Zach come and share because he is a church historian. And I shared about many church fathers, a number of church fathers who we believe, believed in ultimate reconciliation, that all things will be reconciled to God because of Christ Jesus and the work that he's done. So I thought, let's have Zach up as a scholar because I am not a scholar. I'm just a pastor, preacher, dude. Zach is a scholar, so we're going to, let's invite, let's, let's welcome Zach Domac up. Zach, why don't you come on up? Hello, sir. Yeah. So, Zach, can you just tell us, uh, I said you're a professor at Union Theological Seminary. Why are you in Milwaukee while you're a professor at Union Theological Seminary in New York City? I didn't want to pay Manhattan-level rent when I didn't have to. <laughs> really what it is. <laughs> COVID allowed that to happen, right? Exactly, yeah. Remote work. So don't need to be there in person. Yep. So you were here two weeks ago when I talked about John 12, and um, you were a little, little excited. I was bonkers, as I heard earlier. So, <laughs> <laughs> Tell me what you're excited about. Yeah, um, I think a few things. One, I mean, I'm just a real nerd, so you have to be if you really want to pursue this stuff. Um, so when I hear words that I don't expect, I get excited. Uh, so just on a very like fundamental level. But I think on a bigger level, it's the fact, um, it's, it's really kind of a lot of what you just said, actually, kind of before I came up here today, it, the, the framing that you presented of, here's something that I've been on a journey with throughout my life. I've had this position, I've been in this boat, now I'm over here, and it's okay if you're not there with me, but I'm just gonna tell you about this, and then we can have a conversation. And I just think creating that kind of environment is so healthy, and we don't really see that. Um, I think a lot of times in, in the church community, there's just a lot of this is right or this is wrong, or there isn't just a lot of space for conversation, and I think just the way that you cultivate that atmosphere, or even like having weeks like this, um, where people can ask questions is, is really awesome, and I just, like, I want to celebrate that. Cool. Awesome. Um, so I, I shared... He's being so humble. He, like, doesn't want to lean into that at all, but I just, I really do want to stress, like, it's awesome that we can do this. Like, so many churches, you'd never be able to have this kind of conversation, and it really should be celebrated. Yeah. Awesome, Zach. Thank you. Um, so, about the Ndedekumpo <laughs> word, apocatastasis. Yeah. How do how do I how should I be pronouncing that? Apocatastasis. Apocatastasis. See, when he says it, I'm like, of course, apocatastasis. But then, but then, two seconds it's later, I forget. It's a funky word. Yeah. You want to nerd out a little bit with us? Sure. Let's yeah? do it. All right. Go ahead. Uh, so it's on the screen, so you can you can see this word, right? I mean, it's it might look a little familiar in some ways, like apocalypse. The sort of same beginning, um, and I think just before we really dig into this word, just looking at like what does this fundamentally mean, 
it might be a nice sort of starting place and let me, so that we're all you, on the same page. Professor uh, Domak, before you get into it, let me just say this is why I said it, and it's because Peter says it in the book of Acts. Chapter 3. Chapter 3. Let's see, where, what verse? Doggone it. I, it's 21. I 21. Think. You did look. All right, good. <laughs> Peter just healed the lame, this, 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 this paralyzed person, and he, like, he's now giving account for why he was able to heal him, and he's giving glory to Jesus and talking about basically this is what God has done in Jesus. And he says, heaven must receive him, Jesus, until the time comes for God to restore everything. For God to re- until the time comes for God to restore everything. Everything. Okay. That's apocatastasis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's great, right? It's a hard word. If we mess it up, whatever. It's not a big deal. Uh, I think we all know what we're talking about. But yeah, so the, fundamentally, this word, um, it kind of, Greek is a language that has a lot of prepositions that it'll toss onto things, and that's what we have going on here. What's a preposition? So that's a, a word or uh, a prefix, technically, in this case, because it's attached to the word, but basically like something that you add on to the front of a word that gives it a, a new meaning, that changes its meaning right. in some way. So in this case, um, it comes from a word that just means, a very common Greek word, um, isthmi, which means to like stand. Uh, and then if you add kata to that, which has a bunch of meanings, but in this case, probably something like downwards, so now to stand down, so it really means like I place or I set or I establish, and then you put the apo in front, which also has a lot of meanings, but in this case it's something like again, so I reestablish, or I restore, and that's where we get this kind of like meaning of what all of this is when combined. Um, so just think of this word as meaning restoration or reestablishment. Got it. So what's, why is this word so fascinating to you? Yeah, um, personally, and we, we can get into this maybe a little bit later, but I'm a big fan of uh, an early um, Christian theologian and bishop by the name of Gregory of Nyssa, who um, this word is important to his theology and thinking, and so for that reason, I'm kind of into it because I'm a Gregory of Nyssa fan. But in the ancient world, while today this is like a highly technical term, um, which so what I mean by that is it's, it's really limited to a very specific theological meaning in its modern usage. But if you were a Greek speaker like Peter or um, Luke who's writing the Acts and, and recording what Peter is saying here, um, this is a word that actually would be very familiar to you because it's a word that has um, a meaning in a medicinal sense, so healing, a restoration to the original state of whatever the body was supposed to be in, um, it has a legal meaning, uh, which would be something like restoration of stolen property or the return of a hostage to their hometown. It has um, astronomy meanings, so like the planets returning to their original cycle on their elliptical orbit. Um, and then it has a lot of meanings in philosophy, and it's from that kind of thinking that it starts to move into Christian theology. So you mentioned Gregory of Nyssa. Mm-hmm. Now, I mentioned Gregory of Nyssa two weeks ago. I mentioned him among a number of uh, 
church fathers and mothers even who we think perhaps believed in the restoration of all things, who believed in ultimate reconciliation. And when I say ultimate reconciliation, I mean the belief that all people and all things, like the scriptures say in the New Testament, will be restored to God because of Christ Jesus. Um, we're, let's hone in on Gregory of Nyssa because he's one person who is super foundational in yeah. church history. Can you he's just a tell big us about, <laughs> Can you tell us about old Greg, Gregory of Nyssa? Yeah. Um, I think we might want to back up actually to origin okay. uh, just right. to proceed in a way that makes sense. But um, so in the development of Christian thought, as I mentioned, this word is, it's such a part of not necessarily daily life, but it certainly has a lot of different meanings and applications in the Greek-speaking world. So it's not something that has this very niche technical sense that it does today. And as a result, it pops up in so many different ways. And when Christians are using this word early on, it doesn't necessarily mean the same thing that it does when we use it today in the sense of universal reconciliation mm -hmm. or salvation. Mm -hmm. And that means just because somebody uses this word historically doesn't mean they meant the same thing by it that we mean today. Um, sometimes it's unclear what they meant by it. Uh, sometimes they meant something just totally different. And so we have to kind of parse the passing of the centuries to really work with that. But uh, I think where a lot of this really, a good place to kind of start is with a guy named Origen of Alexandria. He died in the year 253, so the mid-third century. And Origen is a Greek-speaking theologian. He's generally considered to be the first, like, truly systematic theologian, um, probably the single most important theologian in all of Christian history. That is a huge claim. I know that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you could maybe argue Paul is, but I, I don't really see it because Paul is not as systematic um, in his approach. And... Origin is really important because, one, he's just early. So he has a massive amount, like a huge amount of influence on pretty much everybody that follows. Um, and sometimes that's because they're rejecting what he said, but that's still a form of influence, and sometimes they're following in his ideas and developing them in different ways. And a big reason why he was in a position to be so influential is because he's from Alexandria. Alexandria is a port city, it's still around today, um, in Egypt, so, and it's on the Mediterranean. And this is really important because the Mediterranean is kind of like the lifeblood of the ancient Mediterranean world. It's how people navigated, it's fundamental to the economics of the world, um, it's how people would travel. And you would always sail around the edge of it because sailing across the middle, they didn't really have the best ship technology, so you'd probably just get caught in a storm and, and go down. I mean, right, Paul gets caught in storms all the time. It's not easy necessarily. Yeah. Um, you can survive. There's always islands nearby, but, you know, it can be rough. Um, so as a consequence, Alexandria is a really important city because it's, it's a cultural melting pot. So it's in Egypt. So you, it has access to all of North Africa. But it also has people coming over from Spain, Italy, um, Syria, and then through the Nile and the Red Sea, and it has access to Arabia, and even across that, um, there's trade routes into India and what is modern Sri Lanka. So this is a city that has a huge cultural um, 
diversity, ethnic diversity, linguistic diversity, and it's um, intellectually a much more tolerant city than many other places. People there are just interacting with a lot of people that are different from them, and they're learning from those ideas. You've got a strong Jewish quarter, you've got the Greek population, the native Egyptian population, and then all sorts of other people just traveling through. And that's where Origen is from, that's the environment and the milieu that he's growing up in and is developing his ideas in. So he's really being shaped um, by a lot of ideas at, of the time and the age. And some of the ideas that he comes up with are, um, there's, so, so it, it, this is a tricky subject because Origen became controversial um, for a variety of reasons, but mostly because his theology was later misunderstood and mischaracterized, and then later groups interpret it in ways that he probably didn't mean, and they were kind of, they were, well, they were straight up condemned by the, the church authorities. So, as a result, figuring out what he originally thought can be a tricky task. It has to do with translations, and is this Latin translation of his original Greek, which is lost, really accurate? Maybe, maybe not. Um, but what we do know, and because we do have some texts that survive, is he believed in something that involved the pre-existence of the soul. And that means that the soul was around before the body was created. The soul didn't just come into being at the moment that the body showed up. And that created, in later thinking, all sorts of questions and problems. And it really comes down to, did Origen think that the soul had um, was it like a disembodied creation at the beginning? And this is getting way too complicated, so I'm going to stop there and just say <laughs> why this matters and why it caused people so much concern is because it has to do with issues of salvation. Because what does it mean then for the resurrection body to be restored to its original state? Was its original state a kind of spiritual soul existence floating around? that was disembodied, and if so, what, how do we understand the resurrection body? Can it be an earthly body if its original state wasn't an earthly body? And so these are the kind of questions that people were really wrestling with, and a lot of scholars nowadays think, despite what was, when later people said Origen thought that there was no, um, that it was a disembodied original preexistence of the soul, that's not, quite nuanced enough, and it's more like there is a body, but it's um, kind of characterized in different ways. And also it has to do with time, like is this a reality outside of time, or is it a reality that's like an earlier time? So this is absolutely wild. You can see how over many centuries people got confused about it, people didn't know what was going on, people were arguing back and forth. But the point is, he had this idea, and because he had this idea and was so widely read, because of his vast amount of, of writings that he left in the, and therefore the, and he was so early that the influence that he had on later thinkers, some of which um, really took his ideas and, and, and ran with them, this is kind of where this idea in many ways was at least first systematized in, in a sort of Christian theology. So, Origin of Alexandria, very, very important for this, and kind of, he got this from Greek philosophy and all the ideas that were happening in, in Alexandria, and it was definitely a way of also conveying um, Christianity 
uh, and talking because he had a big evangelical sort of missional emphasis of how can I make this understood and communicate it to the Greek educated elite in Alexandria, to the Jewish community, to people that are my conversation partners in language and ideas that they would understand. So that's kind of where he was coming from. And so Origen believed in ultimate reconciliation. Origen, I mean, it's still debated, did he? But <laughs> I would say he probably, he definitely believed in some, in some form of restoration and reestablishment. But the real question is, what did he mean by that? Did it mean salvation? Did it mean, a, I, I mean, he probably, I think the best way to think about it is he believed in it in a sense of there were different stages. A lot of people um, would not be, uh, to use the metaphor earlier, the Pauline metaphor, purified or refined um, in, in this life. And so there would be kind of a continuing intellectual refinement of the soul after death um, to help it get back to that original state. But eventually, everybody would get there, yes. Okay. Thank you for the origin for dummies, uh, little, little brief. Um, now you wanted to go into talking about Gregory of Nyssa. Yeah, so Gregory of Nyssa is a fourth century uh, theologian. He died in, uh, I wanna say 395. So just to give you a kind of sense of this. So he's living about 150 years after Origen. And he is uh, part of a group of thinkers and uh, early Christian writers that we call the Cappadocian Fathers. Love the so Cappadocians. They are fantastic. Sometimes the group, um, especially in a modern sense, is expanded to be called the Cappadocian um, Fathers and Mothers because there are definitely some very important women among this group. Uh, they just didn't write anything directly. And at its core, um, this group consists of three dudes, uh, Basil of Caesarea, who was a very important Christian bishop, his little brother, Gregory of Nyssa, and then their friend, a guy named Gregory of Nazianzus. There weren't that many names in the ancient world, so you get a lot of Gregories and whatnot. Um, and Gregory um, of Nyssa, so the youngest of this group, is generally considered to be the most um, speculative um, theologian, the, most, the deepest thinker, the most philosophically inclined of this group. Basil, for example, is... Uh, founded hospitals, um, was a great organizer. Um, so he had very good like political and management skills. Mm -hmm. uh, his brother was much more nuanced and sophisticated in his thinking. Um, and he was a bishop, but of like a really boony small town in the middle of nowhere. Probably just made a bishop because his older brother needed some more bishops for like to support his like side in, in church debates. So he was like, okay, we'll make you bishop of this town and then you can just support me and now I have one more vote. Um, so <laughs> it's, um, being a bishop is, back then is not necessarily like the same sort of um, prestige that it is today where you have like a large city or community or, or district. It was very small in Gregory's case, which allowed him to not really have to focus on these kinds of um, management things, and yeah. pastoral things uh, and instead really dig into some of the theological stuff. So he wrote a lot which has survived um, and I should say like he's the only church father only early Christian writer um, of any sort who opposed slavery um, which is really a big deal 
um, because slavery was just part of the ancient world. It's not the same type of slavery that the um, transatlantic slave trade was. But for Gregory, uh, owning another human being was simply wrong because all humans are created in the image of God, and therefore they have this innate dignity in them. How about that? So he, this, is, this is really... Um, I mean, in, in the third century, this is groundbreaking yeah, and unheard absolutely, of. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, at least to like really come out with a position like that um, as somebody who is, is a leader in the church. And obviously, it wasn't, um, it didn't change things. Uh, mm-hmm. But this is, this is the kind of person he is and how he's thinking about things. And so Gregory definitely was influenced by Origen. Um, I think even more so than Origen, we can clearly say Gregory really did um, believe in some some form <laughs> of apocatastasis, um, which for him really goes back to um, kind of a sort of platonic philosophy, which is this idea, um, again, of if we're going to look back at a restoration, in platonic philosophy you have this kind of idea that everything started in this um, earlier state and has fallen away, and then there's this longing um, or this striving especially of the soul, to go back into unity with God. And that is what all of life's um, journey and effort is. And it's, life is a kind of constant journey of, uh, of growing in virtue. So it's an ethical process. Um, uh, and, and you can never reach God because humans are finite and God is infinite. But you can continue to strive and, and get closer and closer. I mean, closer and closer is kind of insignificant when we're dealing with infinity, but the point is you are growing in your own um, sort of ethics and virtue as you try and, and go back. And because there's that, again, that striving to go back, for Gregory, this is only possible, the complete restoration of all things, all humanity in his case, thanks to Christ and at the end of the day. Um, so... I can talk more about that if, if people have questions later, kind of where his ideas are coming from. But fundamentally, I would say Gregory of Nyssa absolutely did believe in this. Um, this is a minority position. Um, he is somebody who is one of the three most um, important uh, theologians in, in the Orthodox world um, because he is so fundamental. Um, he is a saint in like every tradition that recognizes saints in the Christian church. Um, but this is one thing that people are like, oh, but he kind of actually did maybe believe in apocatastasis. Like, that's maybe the one thing that we're a little like, mm, we don't love that about Gregory. Um, so even though today we're talking about this um, in a much more, particularly for Randy, I should say, in a much more affirming um, view of, of these beliefs, they are not the mainstream belief. Um, and this is an unusual situation. Most people did not think this in the ancient world, at least not a- applying it in this particular meaning of it. But for Gregory, there definitely was this idea of, at some point, all of humanity, um, and really all of creation, all the cosmos, to use the Greek word, will return to uh, its original state as part of a heavenly chorus and just be singing praises to God Which forever. sounds like Revelation 5 and Absolutely. Philippians 2. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Um, and by that, I mean when these verses, when it says, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, so, thank you. So basically, to sum that all up, Gregory of Nyssa is one of the most foundational church fathers 
Very, very, in history. very important. Yep. Mm-hmm. And at least at some point in his life, because we, we, we can't talk to Gregory, we don't know what he, what he, when he died, mm-hmm. what he thought, but at some point in his life, he believed in ultimate reconciliation, you would say. Yeah, again, I wouldn't necessarily say that in the sense that he meant it in the exact same way that we mean it today, yep. Yep. but he definitely believed in this fundamental um, return of all of humanity and the cosmos to this original state, um, which is a definitely a heavenly state. Yeah. So the reason that I wanted Zach to join us this morning is just to, because again, again, I'm a pastor, and pastoring is a very practical vocation. It means leading a church family. It means uh, caring for people and shepherding the people of God into uh, a, a discipling posture towards Christ. It's not a scholar. Like too many pastors try to pretend that we're scholars and we're not. Zach here is a scholar, and so I wanted him to just kind of, as a scholar, lend his um, voice to say, was Gregory of Nyssa, are there some church fathers and mothers who believe in ultimate reconciliation? And thank you for being willing to talk with us, Zach. So since we have Zach up here, I thought it'd be great to have some questions that maybe people have. So Shelly, you have a look on your face like maybe we have some questions. Okay. Okay, the first one is um, being that we're in um, the season of Jesus' sacrifice, we're kind of leading up to Good Friday in this Lenten season. Um, so how does Jesus' blood shed on the cross bring this reconciliation? So what is, where, what is your atonement theory within it? Atonement theory? So I, underst- I get that this is a very geeky Sunday morning, and some of you are like, this is too much for me. If that's the case, just wait till next week because we're going back to normal. Well, maybe we're, we're doing a Q&R maybe next week as well, but uh, this is not... But not with me, so you yeah. don't have to worry about that. Yeah. So for those of you who this is too heady for, it's okay. We don't have Zach up here every single week, but it's fun. I like geeking out with Zach. But uh, atonement theory just means how, what happened in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that got us eternal life. Would you say that's a good layman's interpretation of yeah. it? Okay. And um, there's a number of different theories of atonement, a number of different theories of what, Jesus, what happened in Christ to give us life. And I think that we have to look to the whole of the narrative of the, of the scriptures, in particular the New Testament, and see that um, Paul says in Romans, if you want to know a, like good atonement theory, just read the first eight chapters of, of Romans, I would say, and try to formulate stuff from there. But um, I think that Paul says that in Christ... God condemns sin in Christ's body. And that means that God actually overcame sin in Christ's body in his death and resurrection. And so I think that I've, I've ascribed to the Christus Victor theory of atonement for a long, long time, which means that um, we sinned and we gave, in, in our sin, we gave power and authority over to sin and the enemy, which is the Satan in the Bible. And we are powerless to change that dynamic. And only in God can, can God do something. And so in Jesus, Jesus lived this perfect life. His life, death, and resurrection affected so that he basically freed us from the power of sin, death, and the enemy and gave us life everlasting. And it's all sorts of stuff throughout the scriptures. Can you talk just a little bit about atonement and what, like, say the question again, Shelley. Sure, I already moved it. Um, <laughs> Um, it talked about that we're in the season of Lent, and 
um, leading up into the death and sacrifice of Jesus. So how does Jesus' blood shed on the cross bring that reconciliation? Yep. What's the atonement theory? Yeah, well, this is perfect because we can start uh, with Gregory of Nyssa again. We just can't get away from him. But um, the, the most famous reason, the Apocalypse stuff is like very niche when we're looking at Christian history. This is not like what Gregory is famous for or something. Um, what he's known for, along with the other Gregory and his older brother Basil, uh, is really in large part the way that they reinterpreted the Nicene Creed. So the, there was a council, a church council, where a bunch of bishops got together and were like, look, people aren't sure what, they're, what to think about a lot of this stuff. Let's sit down and try to debate and hash it out. And that happened in the year 325. And it really wasn't a success. Um, debates continued because we're human. And um, by, by 381, they had to have a, a second council to like keep figuring this stuff out. And then they had to have a bunch more. But 381 is right around the time when they were looking back and being like, okay, we're debating about some of this language. It's not precise enough. And it's the, really the, the Cappadocians. Um, Basil died in, in 379, but he, he laid the, the groundwork that then Just get to it. Gregory and Gregory refined. <laughs> and what that let them do is basically be like, okay, well, Christ has to have this full human nature mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because if the human part of him doesn't die, then how can our humanity be fully redeemed? Mm -hmm. If Christ is just divine, then the sacrifice isn't isn't like it doesn't kind of align with what it's trying to atone mm -hmm. so christ has to have be fully human but also he needs to be fully divine because otherwise like any human could just die and that wouldn't do the work mm -hmm. so for me because of this theology that it's it, what's called christology the theology of christ because he's fully human and that full humanity died on the cross for our sins and was resurrected Therefore, that definitely opens the door yeah. for salvation for all of humanity. Mm -hmm. Perfect. So, because of the incarnation, because of the sacrifice of Christ, because of the resurrection, we have life. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Zach. More, more Shelley? Yeah. Um, this person asks, so it seems like a main driver of people becoming saved in the evangelical word, mm -hmm. um, that, that in that um, there's all often a Christian mindset of a fear of hell. Mm -hmm. So does ultimate reconciliation mean there is no hell? Uh, I don't think it necessarily means that. I think that, first of all, hell is a loaded term and concept, right? And if we let Zach go into, like, all the ideas or pictures or possibilities of hell in this. In yeah, Randy's here to stop me. Yeah, yeah, we, we'd be here <laughs> we all, I till need it, Tuesday. So. Yeah. Um, but I will say this, hell in uh, the New Testament is usually metaphorical. It's usually, whether it's Jesus talking about Gehenna, which is a literal place that's a dump outside of Jerusalem that Jesus uses as a picture to talk about where, like, this is, this is where you, this is, this is what happens to you without Jesus, without God in your life. It's like you, you just live in this dump where the fire never goes out, literally, right? Um, so most of that hell language and concept is metaphorical. We also get a lot of it in, in church history and today from Dante's Inferno more than from the scriptures. Would you agree with that? Yeah, Dante really expands on what's there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in a beautiful literary way. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So, one of, uh, I think it was Julian of Norwich, who's a, uh, a mystic, when was Julian alive? Uh, like, in 1500s. Okay. Um. Um, somebody asked her, do you think, do you believe in hell? And she said, well, yes. And then she whispered in, in legend to somebody else, I just don't think anyone will end up there. Um, and that's, that's kind of like when we talk about hell, um, maybe it exists, maybe it's a metaphor, maybe it's a literal thing. This is me talking, Randy Knott. This is what I think. Um, but I just think that hell might be, if hell exists, I believe it's that refining fire of the love of God that is burning away all that, it, all that is not of love so that we can stand before Jesus as we are in, in our original created design in the likeness of Christ. Um, so in the evangelism, uh, yeah, a lot of evangelism in the, in the 20th century has been, in 21st century has been motivated by this fear of hell. And I don't think, well, first of all, I don't think that works anymore. Um, if you talk to young people and you go to try to give them a track and you give them this bridge metaphor of like, this is where you're going to end up, they don't, young people don't care. And not even just young people, people, I'm, 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 in, I'm middle-aged, praise Jesus, 44 years old. That doesn't motivate people my age even, I don't think. I think that's kind of a, 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 a dead method of evangelism and um, apologetics. I think what matters most to, in the New Testament and in, in all of the scriptures is this life right here and now. And how can I be transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ? I think that's what Jesus is obsessed with. I think that's what Paul is obsessed with. I think that's what Peter is obsessed with. And that is right now me saying yes to Jesus and then tomorrow me saying yes to Jesus and then the next day me saying yes to Jesus and see the effect that my discipleship, I grow in likeness of Christ. That's what I think the New Testament is mostly about. What would you have to say to that, Zach? Uh, <laughs> so I would say that there is no like single understanding. Um, there are multiple ways to think about universal reconciliation um, and a lot of those absolutely leave room for some, if not hell, again, it depends on what you mean by that, but some sort of um, purgatorial state, something that's going on after you die before this ultimate reconciliation and restoration happens. Um, and that's generally understood to be happening kind of at the end. And since a lot of people have died before then, maybe something's going on between that point. Um, so I would say this does not necessarily remove that. But it, that, what that state is, that sort of intermediate place, can be understood in a lot of different ways, um, mm -hmm. metaphorically um, or, I guess, literally, too. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And I hope you hear what we're talking about is very mysterious. And we're, we're like, people throughout the centuries have been trying to their best to to put the, connect the dots, but we're still trying, right? And, and we'll never get it. Like, exactly. we can't know. We can talk about it and have these conversations exactly. in a public space and just be like, what do you think? And like, oh, I haven't thought of that or I haven't considered that and try and learn from one another. But ultimately, who knows? Yep, yep. And that's not to relativize it. It's just to say, it's just to be honest. Yeah, it's, be, it's beyond us. Like, yep. the Bible didn't give us enough details and these things are part of some divine plan far beyond human understanding. That's biblical scholar Zach Domek saying that. Shelley, one or two more? Sure. Um, how then would this inform our, our missiology? Like, why did Jesus want people to know him? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and why did he send people out if we were all just going to end up in the same place? Yeah, kinda... great question. Um, again, 
I don't think the point of all this is to just say Jesus died so that you can have eternal life and have fire insurance. You know, the, I think the... Um, I think Jesus, I think God cares a lot about me right now and about how I live and about humans being restored and saved from sin and brokenness in such a way that they reflect the image of God because that's the, the original created design is that we are image bearers of, of God. And sin and brokenness have, have, have tarnished that image or that, um, yeah, that image. And so I think the motivation behind getting to people to know Jesus is much more rich and, and beautiful than just saying, so you can have eternal life. It's so that you can actually be a human being the way human beings have been created to be designed, so that you can actually live, life of, live a life of generosity and goodness and grace and be a person of love, so that you can actually build bridges between people groups who have been separated because that's the heart of Jesus and that's the heart of, of God, so that you can actually reconcile broken relationships within your family or your neighborhoods or your, or your workplace so that you can be this light that points people to say, there is more to this world than the political uh, a- angst. There is more to this world than the bitterness and separation. There's more to this world than the judgment, and it's what we've all been created for. Now live into it. Believe Jesus and follow Jesus. Jesus wanted followers, people who looked like him, who acted like him, who talked like him. And that, friends, is invaluable to be able to, to be transformed into the image of Christ right now, right here and now, and grow in that more and more. To me, I don't need any more motivation for sharing the gospel with people. I mean, I have little to add to that. That was a fantastic answer. But I, yeah, I mean, I think it, it has to do with God's heart for us. It's not about um, us wanting to, to be saved from hell or wanting other people to be saved from hell in a kind of like selfish sense. Um, I say that in like a neutral way, just like focused on the self, but it's really just about God is worthy and that is, we have this desire for that. And one of the reasons why God is worthy is because he has that heart for us um, and that just that, once that joy and that fullness in our life now rather than later. All right. Nolan, why don't you come up and let's do one more question, Shelley? Okay, and this is kind of a two, so maybe you can take the first and you can take the second part of it, but... um, what is the difference between this and universalism or Unitarian universalism? Um, and then, Zach, you had mentioned that this is kind of a fringe view. Um, who else believes it, and where can people learn more about this? Why don't you go first, Zach? Uh, okay, so who else believes it? Um, not many people of, of the big names, that's for sure. Um, I think probably a lot of people who were not necessarily um, privileged enough to be writing things that have lasted, because um, education and literacy is, is a true privilege, especially historically speaking, um, probably thought something like this um, simply because of their circumstances or just because they weren't engaged in larger conversations that where they were being told this was wrong, because um, that was definitely happening in, in some circles. but. Uh, as for who else um, believe this, I would say, I mean, if you go back and you listen to two weeks ago, the sermon, Randy named a bunch of names. I can quickly name the ones that I recall. You said um, Origin of Alexander, who we talked about, and Gregory of Nyssa, who we talked about today. Also, um, Gregory's older sister, Macrina, um, his older brother, Basil, you named, and then a later figure uh, from the 6th century who's called Maximus the Confessor. 
Um, a confessor is a title uh, that means someone was tortured for their faith, but not killed. So a martyr is someone who actually died. A confessor is someone who somehow survived, but they still underwent persecution. Origin is also a confessor. Um, and I would say I, I disagree with that list. Um, I don't think um, Basil believed this. Uh, the evidence is, is very sketchy. I said maybe Basil. Yeah, you did say maybe. maybe. That is fair. You did say maybe. Um, also, Gregory of Nyssa, uh, I would say really probably did. Gregory of Nazianzus, another one of the Cappadocians, more likely than not did. Um, Macrina, it's hard to say because everything we have from her is written by Gregory of Nyssa, her little brother. So how much of that is him um, using her as a kind of... Um, uh, Socratic exemplar figure uh, versus her actual thought. There's really no way to know. Um, but Maximus the Confessor in the 6th century, I would say, definitely did um, think this, developing on Gregory of Nyssa's ideas and, and going back all the way to origin. So those would be, um, I think, Gregory of Nyssa and, and Maximus the Confessor would be the, the biggest starting places to look, historically speaking. There's a lot more modern theologians who believe a much more technical sense of this in, in what Randy's talking about. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But I can only speak the historical stuff. I'm not a modern theologian. Yep, yep. Uh, Brad Jersak is a modern theologian in the Orthodox tradition who's alive today who believes in this as well. You can look up his stuff. He's got a book that's called And Her Gates Will Never Shut. And it's about, that's literally a line from a verse in Revelation at the end of the scriptures. But Zach is also probably going to be leading a small group or small groups uh, coming up. So if you have more questions about this stuff or love geeking out on this stuff, Zach is probably going to be leading some small a small group at Bruce City in, in a while, right? Yeah, there seems to be some interest in that. So we'll, we can explore some historical themes and, and topics. Yep. So, and then to the first part of the question of like, what's different about this than Unitarian Universalism? And it's, the difference is Jesus. Um, I am not a Unitarian Universalist. I don't think that... Uh, God is all things and, you know, that uh, we're all headed towards the same, same thing and that this, this kind of nebulous thing. The difference is, is Jesus. I the reason that I've come to this place, and again, it's me coming to this place, is because of what I've read in the scriptures about the, the effective nature of the incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And that's it. It's not that I don't think sin is a thing. I believe that sin is a real thing that actually is, is, is a disease within all of humanity. I believe that. I believe that we can't on our own get over the, the disease called sin on our own. I think that's why we needed Jesus. And I think that in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, I believe... So here's, here's, here's a way that makes sense to me. If you read Romans 5, Paul talks a lot about Adam and Jesus and how we got lost in Adam, and, and he uses Adam as an archetype and says basically, like, as in, he says, well, actually, Conrad, could you put Romans 5, that text up there? I know we're going long, friends. Thanks for bearing with us. Consequently, this is, this is Paul saying this, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification in life for all people. This is the Bible. And this is Paul saying, in, in Adam, we're all dead. In Adam, we're all sinners. This is the doctrine of original sin that both of us would say we don't fully agree with. Yeah, Augustine really was on that, but I'm not on that train. Yeah, so. yeah. But 
I think there's truth where Paul says that we have this sinful flesh or that sinful, a sin nature and that all of us are, are, are kind of hopeless in and of ourselves because of Adam's act and that's universal. So, uh, Paul says, in Jesus, all have been justified. Also, one righteous act resulted in justification in life for all people. Here's, here's what Brad Jersak would say, and he, he is a theologian. He would say, we're universalists when it comes to Adam. Do you know what I'm saying when I say that? We're universalists when it comes to Adam. All are dead in their sin because of Adam's act. But we're not universalists when it comes to Jesus. I'm going to say that again. We're universalists when it comes to Adam, but we're not universalists when it comes to Jesus. In other words, many of us believe that the work that Adam did in, in his sin was more substantial and effective and consequential than what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection. Are you guys still with me? And so I think what Paul's saying here is that we can be universalist when it comes to Adam and universal when it comes to Jesus. Adam, in Adam, we're all dead, and in Jesus, we're all given life. So that's where the, this is different than Unitarian Universalism, is that it's rooted in the work and life and death and resurrection of Jesus and Jesus alone. That's the only reason that I believe this, is because I believe that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is so effective that literally when scriptures say all things that will be restored to God in Christ Jesus our Lord, that, that God, in, in Ephesians 1, that God has, God's purpose was to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that I think he just meant it. So that's the difference is the, the Jesus in the middle of it. And I think we'll be done with that. Let's thank Zach for, for sharing his wisdom with us. Thank you, Zach. Really. My pleasure. Yep. Um, and let's stand and pray. We're going to sing one more song before we're done. If you've got to go, blessings to you. We love you. Um, Jesus, would you, um, Holy Spirit, do you, would you continue to cultivate this spirit in this church that is... Um, valuing one another over our opinions. That is being lifelong learners. That is a spirit of humility realizing that each and every one of us have not figured it all out. And we won't. But that's the joy and the pleasure of following you, Jesus, is that we, we I want to know you more. Like Paul said, I want to know you and the power of your resurrection more and more today. I want you more in my life today and tomorrow than yesterday. I want to reflect you more and more. I hope I'm up here 10, 20 years from now saying the same exact thing. And I hope I'm a lot closer to looking like you, Jesus. So thank you for this journey that Shelley spoke about. Thank you for this good journey that we're on, the spiritual life. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for cultivating beauty and goodness in us, for embodying Jesus in such a way that that we can smell and taste and touch like the Apostle John spoke to, the person of Christ. Would you lead us into more and more fullness in Jesus, not in me, 
not in any church leader or even church historian or church father or mother. Jesus, we are oriented towards you. We love you. We follow you in you alone. So come and lead us into truth. Lead us into life. Correct us where we need correction. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Bring clarity and and bring your truth, which is you, Jesus. So as one church who thinks many different things, who believes a number of different things, but who are centered around you, Jesus, that's where we find our unity. We sing this last song in worship.